Thanks, Ben, and thanks for the opportunity of being with you. It's um, always good to have fellowship. As Paul was reminding us, that uh, it's great to be part of the people of God and it doesn't matter where we go in the world. When we find fellowship with other believers, we can be encouraged and strengthened. We've got a daughter who has just gone over to Enborough University for a year, just a week and a half ago, so first time for the empty nest. So, yeah, we need some prayer. But we're just very thankful to God that already she was met by a Christian friend off the plane, taken to the university, has already connected with Christian Union and we trust that she's able to connect with the church, particularly today. They're nine hours behind so she's asleep at the moment. But again we thank God that we are part of the people of God and as we were being reminded that the connections that we have is one to support and encourage each other but primarily to help us get to know God himself because you see that's what it's all about isn't it? We can't see God, we can't touch God, we can't feel God. Who is he? How do we know that he's there? Primarily it's through other believers and that's why it's so important to belong to a church family, to be able to come together to make sure we always spend that time connecting with each other. What are we living for? When you woke up this morning, what were the first thoughts that came into your mind? What's the goal that you're seeking to achieve at the moment? What's on the top of your list? What are you really looking forward to? What's the reference point that's guiding the way that you behave? We've just seen the Paralympics, haven't we? So if we're an athlete, we might be thinking about our reference point being the Olympic Games at Rio in four years' time. And everything that we do, we set our mind on that. Currently, if you're a footballer, you might be aiming to at least get into the grand final if your team's still one of the last four. Maybe you like Stephen and Marie, Stephen and Marie here. If you're engaged, it might be a wedding day that all of a sudden now becomes the dominant reference point in your life over the next little while as you look forward to that. If you're a politician, it might be the election day. There will have to be an election, national election next year And uh, if you're a politician, maybe that is what you're aiming for. If you're building a house, it it might be moving day. I remember when I first started doing forestry, one of the subjects I had to do, which was good fun, was surveying. I've never been a surveyor, but we had to learn basic surveying. One of the things that's still stuck in my mind, it's not where the datum is now, but zero metres above sea level for Victorian maps many years ago when they first started surveying and putting the maps together was a mark at the pier at Williamstown. There was a reference point that every other height above sea level in Victoria took reference to. James tells us that for us as believers our reference point what we're looking forward to, what guides our behaviour. If you look in touch, there's verse 7 of this passage. It tells us that our reference point, 
but our reference point is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the thing that should be dominating our minds. That's the thing that when we get caught up in a whole range of things that we should be coming back to. The Lord is coming. The pivot point of this passage, of these 12 verses that we're looking at this morning, the guiding principle is that Jesus is coming back soon. What does that verse 7 say? Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. Verse 8, the Lord's coming is near. Verse 9, the judge is standing at the door. Has that thought gone through our mind this last week? Is it part of our reference point that's guiding the way that we behave towards each other while we're at work, whatever we're doing. James says to us this morning, our key reference point needs to be the fact that the Lord is coming back soon. And you've been studying the book of James over the last few weeks and there's a whole lot of themes and aspects that you've been looking at listening to Garth I love your podcasts that are available on your site I don't know how many of you let's just see how many of you actually listen to the podcasts on your, on your website oh look at that there's three or four it is a wonderful ministry whoever puts them up is just great but I can sit there back in Ballarat and listen to excellent teaching that is recorded there and made available for all to listen to and just listening particularly to Garth when he gave the introduction, one of the key themes, which is what Ben's reminded us of this morning, is that it's all about becoming mature in our faith. And here James is writing to believers that are scattered, that are under great persecution and he's saying that endure persecution. Why? Because it is all about bringing your faith to maturity. And another one in chapter 2 was talking about that this faith, this mature faith, will be demonstrated in our behaviour. It's not enough for us to know about God. It needs to change the way in which we live. And so in this passage that hinges, the pivot point in the middle, that hinges on the Lord's coming, we can see demonstrated in the first six verses Behaviour that doesn't evidence faith in God and it will be judged when Jesus returns. We'll see the plight of the rich oppressors. We see the misery coming upon them. We see demonstrated a life that's lived purely for self and the results of that. Whereas in the second six verses we see the behaviour of a farmer, of the prophets, of Job that evidence faith in God that we're encouraged to emulate. You know, James's advice to these rich oppressors is that they're to weep and wail. They're to weep and wail. So here he has quite clearly three reasons 
four reasons why they need to weep and wail. It's a bit of a challenge, isn't it? In one sense it's looking at a negative, what not to do, and then we'll look at the positive, which is what we should do. But here he highlights why they should weep and wail because their reference point to wealth, to money, has been wrong. And the first reason that they need to weep and wail is because of how they got their wealth. Verses 4 and 6 talk about the fact that they got their wealth at the expense of others. They created their wealth in a sinful wrong way. There's nothing wrong with wealth. There's nothing wrong, according to the scriptures, with being rich. But there is a lot that's wrong if we get that wealth in the, in the wrong way. The prophet Amos, he actually condemned the wealthy. Why? Because what was happening there, back in Israel, when Amos was a prophet, was that they were robbing the poor and they were using their stolen wealth to live in luxury. But there's two main reasons as to how they got their wealth. One was that they held back wages. It says that in verse 4, that they held back the wages of their workers. Labourers were hired by the day back in James's time. You might remember Jesus telling the parable of the labourers. Remember, and they came and he, the, the uh, employer employed a number of them throughout the day and when it came to the end of the day, that was when they got their pay. There was no such thing as a legal contract for agreement or anything like that. No, they worked for the day, they were paid at the end of the day. And if you read the Levitical law, it says this, it says, the wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until the morning. Leviticus 19 and 13. Or in Deuteronomy 24 and verse 14, it says, you must give a hired servant his wages on the day before the sun sets. Because that was his livelihood. He needed it right then and there. And these rich men were holding back wages. They were essentially stealing. They weren't paying their workmen and even more so, it seemed that they were never going to actually get paid. How does that relate to you and I? Do we pay our bills on time? It's important that we do. Otherwise, we're withholding money from people that it's their right to actually have and they need. We've got some good friends who run a business and they're really struggling. Why? Because of the creditors that don't pay their accounts on time. And in a small business, it can run up to twenty dollars or $30,000 outstanding, which makes it incredibly difficult for them to function as a small business. As believers, sometimes we think that, well, particularly if it's someone else who's a believer, that they'll be gracious and they'll accept us paying them back late. This passage clearly teaches us that that's wrong, that that's sin, that we need to be paying people what is rightfully theirs at the right time. What about our tax in terms of how we manage that process? You know, sometimes it can be thought of as a bit of a game. There are clear tax deductions. 
But are they things that are genuinely what we can claim? Or are there some things that are a little bit on the borderline? James says that right behaviour in regard to wealth means that we will give people what is rightfully theirs at the time that they need and deserve to have it given to them. The second thing that these rich people were doing in attaining their wealth was that they were controlling the courts. It says that in verse 6a, in verse 6a that they were controlling the courts. And back in chapter 2 and verse 6, it also says, don't the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? What were they doing? They were using their political power, they were using their relationships to actually get what they wanted. It seemed that in James's day that the courts were pretty easy to control if you had enough money. You could essentially buy the outcome that you wanted. The poor couldn't afford to go into court and so they wouldn't get what was deservedly theirs. It can be a little bit like that today, can't it? It seems that those that have money can afford to engage a lawyer. It's not necessarily about justice. It's more about the legal system and finding the, the, the loopholes and whatnot that are in the law that mean that you can get off um, because something then can't be taken into account because of the way it was presented or whatever that might be. What about us? What does it actually mean here for you and I personally? I think it means that are we using our influence and our relationships to achieve some outcomes that we want that wouldn't normally be able to be achieved and maybe aren't quite done in the right way. So that's just a challenge for us as we think through what it means in the way that we use our connections. Do we use them in a positive way for God's glory or do we use them in a selfish way to be able to get our benefit, the things that we want. Here James is saying, weep and wail because you've got your money in a sinful, illegal way. But secondly, they had to weep and wail because of the way that they used their wealth. They gained their wealth in sinful ways but they also used their wealth in sinful ways. What did they do wrong? Verse 3, it says they stored it up. There's nothing sinful about saving money. In actual fact, in the parable of the talents, Jesus actually said to that, or the, the master said to the servant who had the one talent that he hid it in the ground, he said, you should have put it in the bank. You should have let it get interest. You should have saved it in an appropriate way. 1 Timothy 5 and 8 tells us that as believers we need to make sure we care for our own household. We need to do that by saving having the resources to be able to feed and clothe our families. So what is it that was wrong about storing it up? It was why they stored it up. They stored it up for themselves, for this life only, to live in luxury at the expense of those they owed money to and in actual fact they should have been sharing their money with. Remember Jesus talking in Luke 12 about the parable of the rich fool? He was a farmer. I come off a farm. What a sensible thing to do. 
He had a bountiful harvest. He couldn't store it in his existing silos. So what did he do? He bought a few more so that he could store all his grain. But God came along and said, you fool. What had he done wrong? What he'd done wrong was that he was relying on his wealth and what he was storing up there to give him his security and he was ignoring God. So for you and I, as we think about this, we need to be laying up treasure in heaven. That's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 19. Don't store up treasure here. Store up treasure in heaven. What does it mean to store up treasure in heaven? I've seen a couple of wonderful examples this morning of investing resources to store up heaven, uh, store up treasure in heaven. One was the Christmas boxes. Again, taking something mightn't be a lot, but putting together parcels that are going to go across to the other side of the world to provide support and encouragement to people that don't know anything necessarily about Jesus. And again, the walk that raised 1800 and something dollars and you can still choose to give. Can I say to you that as you give to those sorts of things, you are actually investing in eternity. That's what it means to lay up treasure in heaven. It means to use the resources that God has given us so that there will be an eternal outcome. You might have a lovely home. If that lovely home is just used for you, then it'll be like the rich fool. God will say it didn't have any value. But if you use that home to entertain people, to connect them with God, to provide fellowship and support for those that perhaps don't have as much resource as you do, if that home is used to glorify God, then that's investing in eternity. That's laying up treasure in heaven. It's sad to see people just accumulating wealth upon wealth to use just for themselves so that they can go on multiple trips for their own benefit. What was it said of the fellow that passed away who was a millionaire? And they said, how much did he leave behind? Someone said, he left everything. You never ever see a hearse going down the street being followed by a removal van with all the goods and everything that has been collected to take with them to the next life. That's the tragedy of the pharaohs, isn't it? It's really a monument to self-indulgence and greed of thinking that they could take their entire wealth with them to the next life. No, indeed, we need to lay up treasure in heaven. In verse 5 it says, They lived in luxury and self-indulgence. And Jesus said, Be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Luke 12 and 15. And yet everything around us tries to squeeze us into that mould, to that reference point, 
that it's the amount of stuff we have that determines our worth. We know that's not the case but let's not get caught in that trap. And thirdly, these rich were to weep and wail because of what their riches will do. Firstly, they will vanish. There's no security in wealth. What did Paul tell Timothy in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 17? To instruct those who are rich in this present world to not put their hope in the uncertainty of riches but to put their hope in God. The money market changes just about every second, doesn't it? All of a sudden your shares can be worth a lot. Next moment they can be worth very little. Life is brief. We can't take our money with us. We know it doesn't provide security. That's a challenge for us, particularly blokes. I don't know why. Have we got enough superannuation? Will I be able to survive into the future? Now, yes, we do need to plan and prepare for the future. But when that takes over our mind and that that's what we're thinking of and that's what we're constantly working towards, then it's wrong and we're caught in this same trap that James is talking to these rich oppressors. Also, what's going to happen to their riches? It says that misused riches will erode their character. It says that their flesh will be eaten like fire. What does that mean? I think it means, like Paul warned Timothy, that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. That when the desire is there and that's what takes over, that I'm going to make my first million by the time that I'm 25, whatever that goal might be, that it, as a desire, eats our flesh like fire. The poison of wealth has affected them and they're actually being eaten alive. We say, yeah, that only belongs, doesn't it, really, to people that aren't believers and they're outside the church. Paul wrote to Timothy that verse, those verses, to the church at Ephesus. Been looking at that recently. And it's interesting. There's a list of criteria given for elders in 1 Timothy and one of them particularly is is that they're not lovers of money. Why is that specifically there? If you go back to Acts chapter 20 and you see when Paul last met with the Ephesian elders that came down to meet with him at the boat specifically he said to them two things one is is that wolves will rise up from within the church and will tear the flock apart and the second he said I want you to know that I've not coveted your money that I didn't take any money from you while I was there ministering amongst you at the Ephesian church what seems to have happened we can build a very strong case that it was the elders at the church at Ephesus that had gone astray, that were tearing the church apart and one of the key reasons was because they were lovers of money and were involved in the ministry for financial gain. It comes right through very strongly and very clearly and so consequently 
the warnings for us as believers not to get caught in the trap of this desire for wealth, of this desire for money that we think will provide security and will satisfy. No, our reference point must be the fact that the Lord Jesus is coming back and because he's coming back, all of a sudden, when they're evaluated, these rich oppressors, it will all mean nothing. It will evaporate like a mist that in the light of the true reference point, it means absolutely zilch, absolutely nothing. And so, we will be judged for how we've used the resources that God has given us. Not for our salvation, but at the judgment seat of Christ. We'll give an account for how we've used the resources that God has given us, either for his glory or for ourselves. And if we've used those for ourselves, be like the wood, hay and stubble that will be burnt up and come to nothing. Or it will be like gold, silver and precious stones, which are those things that we've invested in others for God's glory, for his kingdom. So there we have the observation of the inappropriate behaviour of the rich oppressors. And it's in that context that verse 7 all of a sudden says, so you then, so as you've looked at them and seen their outcome of their wrong behaviour, this is the way that you need to behave. We need to be patient and endure and hang in there. Stand firm in the light of the Lord's coming. Jesus is coming. It could be today. Things will be put right. The truth will win out in the end. However, there's still a period of time before he does come. And so we need to endure. Remember that James, and Grant was reminding us of that when I listened to that first study, that James is Jesus' brother. James has been taught by Jesus. James spent three years following Jesus around. James was one of the twelve that was for those 40 days after the resurrection, had that ministry, intensive Bible school of teaching from Jesus before he ascended. That's what it tells us in Acts 1 was one of the key things that Jesus did in those 40 days was he taught his disciples including James and he was there at the ascension and he saw Jesus taken up and what did the angel say? Just as he's been taken up so too he will come again. It was an important thing on James's mind and so he uses that as the key encouragement for believers that are suffering persecution. What does Romans 5, 1 tell us as we read through those verses? It says that tribulation works patience. James 1, it says that through this tribulation, through the sufferings that you're going through, this is important so that your faith may become mature and complete. Paul said to Timothy, endure hardship as a good soldier. Hebrews 12 and verse 11 tells us that no discipline, no suffering, no trial is pleasant at the time 
but in its due time it will bring forth a harvest of righteousness and peace. And so we have these three examples, three illustrations of how we are to behave while we're waiting for the Lord to come. First, we're to be like a farmer. I come off a farmer. I see Ken there. He's got a daughter and a son-in-law who's a farmer. There's nothing like farming to all of a sudden realise that you have absolutely no control over the outcome of your harvest. You can do everything right. You can put it in, put all the fertiliser in, prepare the ground right, but it's only God that can supply the rain. And right now my folks on the farm are really looking for rain. If you're south of the Divide, things are going really well. If you're a long way north at the moment, things are a bit challenging in Victoria. You know, we can jump up and down. We can get long range weather forecasts. We can put a new radar system which we're trying to do in the Wimmera as part of the work that I'm involved in so that people can see and watch the rain come. But it won't make any difference at all to whether the rain comes. We can just see when it will. No, indeed, only God controls the rain. So there's no use getting worried and upset. And yet often we do, don't we? Thankfully. My dad, I can't ever remember hearing him worry about the rain. He might have underneath, but he never put that across to us as kids. He'd say, the Lord sends the rain and when the rain comes, we'll take what he provides. Why is the farmer patient? Because it says that there's a valuable crop at the end. That's what's crucial. The outcome is worth waiting for. Galatians 6 and 9 tells us that in due season we shall reap if we faint not. And so we're to be patient and stand firm. Terry reminded us from uh, from Isaiah 53 about what our Lord did for us on the cross. Why did he do that? What kept him going? There's two things. We read it. One clearly, I think it was verse 11 of chapter 53, said he will see the light of life and be satisfied. He knew it was worthwhile going to the cross because he would see the people of God that would be saved and brought into the kingdom as a result. He knew that God would raise him from the dead. He would see the light of life and he'd be satisfied. What about Hebrews 12? Verse 3, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So for you and I, what is it that keeps us going while we're going through difficult times? It's the fact that Jesus is coming back and ultimately everything will be made right. You see, so these difficult times, we're to see them as a blessing God's at work in our lives making us into the image of the Lord Jesus and we're to stand firm not to grumble against each other it says not to be impatient with each other we're to stand firm because the Lord's coming 
What's the situation that you're facing at the moment that you want resolved? That it doesn't seem fair? That you want it to be different? That you don't think that you can endure it much longer? For me personally, I can think of at least three issues that I'd like to have a different outcome for. And for me, even this last week, it's been the challenge of being reminded of a verse that my mother wrote in my Bible, the first one she gave me when I was seven, that as we're talking about these situations during the week, Heather reminded me of this verse, which I'm sure you know and I know. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. The challenge for me at the moment is not to try and sort it out myself, not to try and think I can work it out, that my understanding is pretty good, that I know what the outcome should really be here and maybe some things don't seem fair. What is it for you at the moment? Are we prepared to trust and to know that God is at work in the situation supporting, encouraging, enabling us to trust him. We have someone who's going through an incredibly difficult time of suffering at the moment. We get emails from him and on the footer of the email there is this constant little verse. May the God of hope fill you with joy and peace as you trust in him. Romans 15 and 13. What does James exhort us to do? He exhorts us to be patient, to stand firm and to persevere. Why? Because the Lord, it says, is full of compassion and mercy. And so the prophets are another example that Jesus used even in Matthew 5 and verse 10 in the Sermon of the Mount. James uses a lot of overtures of the Sermon on the Mount right through his book that I'm sure you've probably looked at. But they suffered for God. Why did they suffer for God? Because it says they spoke in the name of the Lord. You know, sometimes we think, maybe inadvertently teach, that come to Jesus and everything will be okay. He'll sort things out. There shouldn't be anything really difficult. In actual fact, if there's a lot of difficulties going on, then, then maybe our faith isn't strong enough. But in studying Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul says, Some? A few? No, it says all. It says all who live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer. Have we suffered? Are we suffering? Let's not question God. Let's submit to that as he uses that to refine us and make us into his image. Obedience doesn't lead to a life of ease. Obedience for Jesus led to death. And we can think of prophets like Ezekiel and Daniel and Jeremiah who suffered immense persecution. Why? Because they spoke the word 
of, the, of God. And their suffering only makes sense in light of the Lord's coming. What we're experiencing will only make sense in light of the Lord's coming. The apostles rejoiced because they were considered worthy to suffer for the name. And Romans 15 and 4 tells us this, things were written in the past to teach us that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. That's why the work of our daily bread is so valuable, of having people just pick up a passage of scripture every day to read it and to reflect on it and to know that God's word is there for support. And so Job, Job persevered. And what's that wonderful verse? He was tested, everything around him was removed, his family, his flocks, even his own health. Yet what was his response? When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. Maybe you're not suffering at the moment, but you have in the past. I did a little exercise yesterday just in helping me deal with the situation that I'm working through of sitting down and just reflecting back over the course of my life of all of the change points and of being able to be reminded that God was there at every one that I could look and say, yes, Lord, I can see how you have helped and supported and encouraged me at that time. Lord, give me the faith to trust you at this time because I can see from past experience that you are there and will carry me through. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Yes, things will be put right when he returns but he's with us now. He does care. He is our refuge and strength. He is our strong tower. He is our comfort. What did Paul say in 2 Corinthians verse 1? He said all of these difficulties, everything that's happening, why did that happen? So that we might not rely on ourselves but that we might rely on Jesus Christ who gives us the strength. And so in the midst of this suffering, let our yes be yes and our no be no. You know, sometimes when we're in difficulties we say things we shouldn't or we make unrealistic bargains with God We try, or we say things that we don't really mean. What's it saying here? It's saying in the light of suffering our lives are to be ones of integrity. Our word is to be simple and straightforward. Our character demonstrates our relationship with God not about how many words and how well we can put things to actually try and convince someone or even God that we're really living for him. What's the outcome of suffering? The outcome is to make us mature and complete. And if we have this hope within us, John tells us in chapter 3 and verse 3, we will purify ourselves even as he is pure. What's the reference point that you're living your life by? What's top of mind at the moment? What's the situation that you might be experiencing at the moment? 
Will you choose to trust God this week to know that he is with you and supporting and encouraging you to not lean on your own understanding? Jesus is coming soon. Our behaviour is going to be judged. So this passage tells us let's use the resources God has given us to make sure we invest in eternity and let's patiently endure the suffering as he shapes and moulds us and makes us into the image of the Lord Jesus as he brings us to maturity in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you indeed that you are with us. Thank you that you know and understand everything about us. And because you have gone to the cross, because you have been raised to life, we know with absolute confidence that you are coming again. Father, help us to live our life this week in light of that truth so that our behaviour will demonstrate that you are real in our lives and people around us will be drawn to you and glorify you as a result. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.